you're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. But you can tell, hopefully, that I am excited to be spending time with you today, and particularly pleased to be doing so on Reformation Sunday. So, happy Reformation. Does everyone know what that is? Well, good news for you is I'm about to tell you. So to that end, I would like to give a brief overview of Reformation Sunday and why it is still relevant today. So Martin Luther chose to nail his 95 theses or his points on the door of All Saints Church in Wittenberg, Germany on October 31st, the year 1517. So why did he pick All Hallows' Eve or, um, yeah, All Hallows' Eve, Halloween? That's uh, All Saints' Day has been celebrated by the church on November 1st since the first century. So it was originally a Roman Catholic feast day. Uh, All Saints Day is essentially a celebration of all the Christians who have gone to sleep in their earthly bodies and have awoken to glorious perfection in the face of their Savior in heaven. So on this day, or this Sunday, we rejoice in the perseverance of the saints and we rejoice in the completed work of Christ on our behalf. Historians posit that Luther chose this particular festival day because he knew that following Halloween, um, there would be a large number of people attending Mass or the festival the next day. So this was his Mass advertisement strategy, so to speak. Luther posted his 95 points to protest the Roman Catholic practice of selling indulgences. The church was teaching its people that although they were saved by Christ, they still needed to pay penance for and be cleansed of their sin through suffering and purgatory, before entering into heaven. The church offered this really sweet deal that if they paid money now, they could lessen their penance in purgatory and therefore shorten their stay in that place before actually getting to go to glory. We don't have time to discuss the theology of purgatory, but suffice it to say, Luther used his 95 points to propose that this was indeed false doctrine, simply because the Bible does not support that theological claim. And the Bible is the final authority for the church, not the other way around, And all people may reach salvation through faith alone, not works. Paying for an indulgence was a work on human behalf. And therefore, it directly opposes what Scripture teaches about justification, which was the reason that we needed to be reformed. The Reformation also sparked foundational doctrine, which Sojourn um, uses. We receive the five solas. Sola Scriptura, which is Scripture alone. Solus Christus, which is through Christ alone. Sola Fide, through faith alone. Sola Gratia grace alone, and sole deo gloria, glory to God alone. And the theme there is, of course, it is from God, by God, and for God, not us. Our legacy as Sojourn Montrose, being reformed in doctrine and theology, having just celebrated our ninth birthday, pays tribute to the history of this day, this Reformation Sunday, and to God's work through Martin Luther. So, thanks for coming. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Yeah. Now you may ask, what is the point of this history lesson, and why is it relevant to Paul's letter to the Philippians? So at a high level, the Reformation began because some religious authorities, in this case the church in Rome, were demanding that people take action outside of scriptural demands in order to achieve salvation and to earn something for themselves. If they do this task, they can have heaven. If they pay this price, then finally Jesus' work is accomplished for you. And that's just wrong. This, his, this heresy has precedent, and we will see in chapter 3 of Philippians that the chapter begins with a command and warning because it will address this exact thing. So what does it say? It said, first, rejoice and keep watch. So what are we, at? What are we rejoicing in? 
and who or what are we keeping watch from? That's what we're going to talk about today. So let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to come before your church to preach the word and to preach righteousness through faith alone. The world will tell us there's all sorts of ways in which that should be challenged and that uh, we should question ourselves or question that faith or question the ability that God has in being sufficient for us. And so I pray that this morning, in spite of myself or through me, that you would use the word to wash over your people, that you would free them from the burdens that come from having to work or having to perform, and that you would give them the ability to rejoice in that completed work of Christ. We ask these things in your name. Amen. So, we talked about rejoice and keep watch, and there's also the, the subtext, the heading is, from where does righteousness come? This is what Paul is going to address. Because if, if righteousness comes from doing works, if righteousness comes from paying indulgences, if righteousness comes from um, whatever we're about to talk about, then it's in addition to what Christ has already done. And Paul sets out to address this and to correct it. So first, I'd like to explain what verse 1 is saying. Verse 1 says, to write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. So what is he talking about? We can read this text to mean to write the same things again. So when he says to write the same things, it's implied that he's writing them again or talking about them again. So we can have confidence that he has said or explained what he is about to explain at least once before. It could have been in person. It was likely in person. Um, we, whatever it is, we know that he has already talked about this to his people. And so therefore, as he's addressing them, he's saying, hey, this is a reminder and what good are reminders if not for keeping us safe or keeping us whole? Remember to turn off the stove or the burner with the kettle on it this morning. Remember to pay your bills. Remember to brush your teeth. We have apps devoted to memory because why? People forget. We have seen it time and time again in Scripture. Moses left for a few weeks, and the people forgot the numerous miracles that they had just witnessed and decided to take uh, gold and make a golden calf, an idol to worship. By way of the fall... When faced with adversity, people often do return to their former selves. Peter went back to fishing for fish instead of men immediately after denying Jesus. The Lord knows our frame. He knows that we are susceptible to cratering when our beliefs are tested. He knows that we get confused, and he knows that things are tricky at times. So this is your trick-or-treat sermon for Halloween. Come on, that was funny. <laughs> that is why he gave us the most gracious command to remember. We do it every week. We eat, drink, and we feast at this table right here, and we do so in remembrance of Jesus. We remember his work. We remember his sacrifice. We remember that we are cleansed and forgiven by his body and blood alone. So Paul is about to deliver a reminder that is a safeguard. It is to keep them safe because there are people out prowling against this actual message. So in Philippi, the particular brand of confusion experienced by this church likely came by way of the Judaizers. And we hear about these in other texts, um, but these were a faction of Jewish Christians that regarded Levitical laws as still binding on all Christians. In other words, this group was walking around claiming that additional credentials must be met before truly receiving justification. So does that sound familiar? Indulgences, circumcision, whatever, like whatever the message is, ultimately there are people walking around prowling saying you have to do extra to actually be loved by God. We've already talked about it, but I'll remind everyone again that this directly opposes scripture. In the institution of the Lord's Supper, we are invited into the new covenant, the covenant of Jesus's blood that no longer binds us 
to the civil and ceremonial laws outlined in the Old Covenant. Although Philippians 3 does not directly mention the Judaizers, it will become clear that Paul desires to correct errors in understanding of justification as defined by the New Covenant. Again, this is the reminder. So let's move along to verse 2. So who are we keeping watch from? Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. These people, the dogs, the evildoers, the mutilators, that is who we're watching out for. And it takes many forms, but in this particular case at this time, I very quickly want to talk about the fact that dog is not actually a vulgar insult, but a distinct religious noun with Levitical implications. Dogs, per the Old Testament law, were ritually unclean and therefore outside of the camp, and anyone who interacted with one would need to purify themselves before being able to enter back in to the covenant community. You may remember the Syrophoenician woman in Mark 7. This woman had a daughter who had an unclean spirit, and she asked Jesus to heal the child. Jesus says, let the children, and in this case he means the Jews, be fed first before the dogs. And the woman counters that the dogs sit under the table and still get the crumbs that fall. I have two schnauzers at home, and this is their favorite Bible verse, they told me. (laughs) Jesus immediately heals the child and does so because of the woman's faith. This was scandalous to the Jewish community at the time. These types of encounters that Jesus has with the Gentiles actually set the table, so to speak, for the new covenant. So going back to Philippians, Paul is using dog as a religious descriptor as a source of irony. The Judaizers are preaching that cleanliness still comes through good works of the law, the ability to belong, the ability to come in and sit. Paul calls this evil or evil works because it directly opposes the gospel, and the gospel is from God, and anything that opposes God, although it feels harsh, and is against God, is necessarily evil, because all good things come from God alone. Getting more specific, the opposition are mutilators because they have taken the Jewish ceremony of circumcision and forced conformity through social and spiritual pressure. On its own, the actual act, the the medical act of circumcision is not mutilation. But the message behind why Gentile Christians must adhere to it, why they have to participate in it, is a mutilation. The oppression that is represented through the Judaizers is the mutilation. They point to their physical circumcision as a badge of honor, and they are allegiant to ceremonial law and therefore have a better resume, a better claim for belonging to God's covenant community. Paul immediately throws this out by claiming that we are the circumcision. We who are sitting in this room and profess faith in Christ, we are the ones who are the circumcision, the true people of God. We are set apart. Old covenant circumcision was a physical act that denoted a covenant between God and his people, but now we are no longer defined by physical acts of the flesh, but we are defined by the result of a most important and singular physical act, and that act was of Jesus dying a physical death on the cross that achieved acceptance and cleanliness on our behalf. Through that one act, the new covenant is now cut into our hearts by the Spirit, or as Romans 2.29 puts it, A believer is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. So Paul is directly opposing this fact that the Judaizers are saying, you have to do this thing to belong. And he's saying, no, it's already been grafted into our hearts by the Spirit. Consequently, because it's of the flesh, verse 3, he says, we can't, we put no confidence in the flesh. We put no confidence in our acts or our deeds. Instead, we are to glory in Christ because we celebrate the works of his flesh, his body, his acts, his deeds, and through the Spirit, we cling to them as our justification before God. 
So, do we need more evidence than this? Yes, because remember, it is tricky, and we are a forgetful people. In order to drive the point home, Paul is going to present his resume, his credentials for justification by way of the Old Covenant. So verse 4 says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He's a man's man. Verse 5, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a big man. He was an important man. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. Looking at verses 5 and 6, by the student of the law, he was religiously elite. He was a Pharisee, in fact. By fervor or zeal or energy, he had the most. He had all of it. He took his role very seriously, defending the Jewish religious order, that same order that demanded Christ's crucifixion. He continued their work by persecuting the church, the followers of that murdered man. By following the law, he checked all the boxes and hit all the marks. So on paper, he was blameless, as it says in the scripture. If anyone wanted to audit his performance, he would pass with flying colors. Now, of course, this is meant to be ironic as he's writing it. So through his resume, he had claim of moral superiority over almost everyone by worldly standards, or at least by Old Covenant, Old Testament standards. And clearly, on some level, this was an issue for the Philippians, evidenced in early chapters of the letter through commands like, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, and do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So we don't know exactly what was happening, but clearly in that church there was some level of people trying to compare themselves to one another, and you had these outsiders, these dogs, these mutilators that were telling them, yeah, you should compare because y'all aren't measuring up. You need to do more. And you can see why it would be so damaging to have people run around saying that exact thing. You need to get circumcised because then you will have a more legitimate claim to your belonging in this community. And at the heart of every human is the desire to belong, right? On some form or fashion, we have all thought, I want to be a part of something, some group, somewhere. And so when the gospel says everyone's welcome to come in and sit at the feet of Jesus, other people coming out saying like, yeah, but you have to pay a ticket first. Or Jesus, he won't talk to you if you're not circumcised. Like, there's just a flat-out lie. And it's so damaging. And that may seem silly, like back in the... Like, this isn't maybe culturally relevant as much today in America and in the West. But maybe if we think about it, does it strike a chord with anyone by chance? Who here has looked at their own resume and self-assigned superiority and thought, I'm better than that person. At least I'm better than that person either through quiet internal smugness or even outright external posturing, we set ourselves up to be better than our neighbor. We do it in a lot of ways. What about politically? Have you ever said uh, those liberal idiots or those conservative idiots? Either one. What about education? I went to this school, so I can plant my flag there. Or career or skill sets, physical, artistic, mental, organizational, whatever it is. What if you have financial stability or you're wealthy? I have this job or this degree or this artistic gift or this knowledge or this amount in my bank account or I even have this opinion, so I deserve more respect, more deference, more convenience, more comfort. What in your life makes you think, I'm deserving, I'm worthy of attention, and I'm worthy of acceptance and respect? What defines it? So let's take it up a notch. So spiritually, where do we trust ourselves to get it right? To not struggle with that sin? Or do we trust in our own ability to change our circumstances through effort or striving? We don't like the deck that we've been handed, and so we're going to work 
to make it different. We're going to shuffle it up. And we're going to pray and think that, ah, God, see, it's okay. I mean, it'll be all right. I, gotta get, I can work through this. On the flip side, what about the antithesis of fleshly confidence? Have we thought if we don't pray hard enough or we don't try hard enough or don't interpret the signs correctly every time or if we don't pray the exact right prayer, God will not let us in? Or worse, God will frown upon our efforts and be a disappointed dad. What if we compare ourselves to more holy Christians, more holy, to our pastors or our parish leaders? Are they more suited to belonging? Do they have a better claim at being a part of this church because of the office that they hold? In our folly, we tend to believe that our station in life is the result of our effort or lack thereof. Whatever we did or did not do, these efforts we base our claim on these efforts, we place our claim to our own personal thrones. And we put our little crowns on, and we sit with our scepters, and we, then we die trying to defend it. There's little ones, right? For instance, driving on the road, I used this in a parish the other week, but like, have you ever caught yourself driving down, and you see someone coming over, and you're like, how dare you? I'm driving on this road. Don't you know that? I'm the king of the road, and you're on my way. Or maybe a little bit more. I paid top dollar to avoid this inconvenience. This is a nice restaurant, and they didn't saute my onions correctly. And now I'm going to throw a fit because of it. Because I paid good money to be here and sit at this table. What about domestically? Have you ever thought, I earn the majority of the money around this house, so I shouldn't have to help clean up? I don't want to clean up the living room. And you know what? I worked all day. So, yeah, I know that's my chore, but I'm going to do it later. And that's justified. This is Paul's argument in verses 4 through 6. He's using his credentials to say, this is why I belong, or this is why I'm right, or this is why I'm worthy of praise. But then rightly, by having his mind illuminated by the truth of Christ, Paul makes a drastic paradigm shift, and he essentially says, I'm going to burn this whole thing to the ground. I'm burning my resume, and he's burning his resume because he knows that those credentials will never earn his righteousness before God. Whatever list you can come up with, at the end of the day, if you hold it to God and say, this is why I belong, he's going to say, no, it's through my son. And that's the question, right? If we can't look to our own resumes, if we can't look to the deeds that we've done, the tasks that we've accomplished, to whom do we appeal to get favor from the Lord? We've already answered that question in Philippians. So let's go back and look at chapter 2, verses 5. This, as outlined, is going to be Jesus' resume. He is God, and in eternity past, enjoyed perfect community and communion with, his, with the Father and the Spirit. And even though he had that perfect station, he did not count that equality as something to be welded for personal gain, which I should mention is what we're usually trying to do with our own resumes. Instead, he put aside his heavenly credentials to take a menial job, menial by worldly standards, and then he walked through this broken world as a man, and in great humility completed a sacrificial work of the flesh. He submitted his body, his very life, as the final credential for our qualification before God. And for this reason, he has been exalted above all creation, and his work demands our allegiance and our fealty. And the question of who is qualified for the job, who is worthy of ruling over all things, the only appropriate response is to do exactly what Paul does in verse 7. Quote, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. We can no longer rule over our own personal thrones. We have to throw our resumes away. 
it is impossible to count our good credentials against those of Christ because they are appropriately crushed in the face of the infinite weight of the glory owned by Christ. It's a bit of an absurdity, right, to stack ourselves up against Jesus. There's, a, there's one of my favorite little Seinfeld moments is uh, George just rage quits his job and he's in the living room with Jerry and they're trying to figure out what he's going to do and he's, they're kind of subdued and talking and he's like, well, I like sports. You know, I make the little comments during the games. I got good comments. And Jerry's like, well, yeah, you got good comments, but they kind of reserve those jobs for former athletes, <laughs> professionals. And George's like, well, I could be a general manager of, the, of a team, right? I mean, this is something I can do. I, I, I have good ideas for trades and stuff. And Jerry's like, yeah, well, maybe not. So the whole bit is funny because it's absurd. It's absurd that George thinks he's a professional athlete and ability to be able to do that. And I know that this is a dumb Seinfeld reference, but at the end of the day, what do we do if not justify ourselves against the thing that we want, the station we wish to have? I already said it once, but it is absurd because when we weigh our good credentials against those of Christ, again, they have to be. They are appropriately crushed in the face of that infinite weight of glory. And so, in many ways, we should despair, right? If we can't measure up against Christ, then, then what are we to do? But that is the beauty of the gospel, is despite that truth, despite our woeful lack, we are not crushed because Christ has willingly exchanged our resumes for his. We are owed nothing, we're worthy of nothing, but we are invited into intimate relationship with him and graciously no longer have to present our own credentials to earn righteousness, to earn favor. The weight of the Levitical law shows us that we have not and cannot measure up because of our sin. We cannot put confidence in the flesh because the flesh will always lose. Moving on to verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. The beauty of this text is that now, through Christ, we are actually we are released. We are freed to lose our credentials. We are freed to lose our assets and even go as far as to count them as rubbish or garbage or, in some translations, dung. Compared to Christ, that's what it is. We have no claim. And yet we have been given that claim through Christ's accomplished work. The credentials we assign ourselves are actually liabilities. For if we continue to give credence to them, if we continue to hold on to them, then we will be deceived and actively work towards our destruction. We will perish under them. This is why Paul is so determined to root out the heresies of the Judaizers, because Anyone that creeps in and says, but did you do enough? That's evil. And here I will pause for a moment of clarity. This does not mean that we don't get to enjoy the good gifts we are given in work, in food, in family, in holidays, in traveling, and even money. It does mean that if we ever point to those things as evidence of our salvation or the reason that we should belong, then we have lost and we are lost. They are meant to be gifts, and in faith we return gratitude back to that good giver, which again, he's the beginning and end of all things. And we see that even when we have these gifts, we turn to one of the great paradoxes of Christianity, where we lose, we gain. Matthew 16, 24 through 26 says, whoever loses his life for Jesus' sake will find it. 
And where do we find it? Colossians 3.3 says, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And in that hidden life, we gain Christ himself. We gain his righteousness, his benefits, his companionship, his acceptance, his freedom, his adherence to the law of the spirit of life, his resurrection, his sufferings, his death, and praise be to God, we gain his very life. And so now all the gifts that we receive are no longer credentials for which we hold up and position ourselves. We say these are good gifts that can be used to the glory of God because my life is hidden in Christ. My life is Christ. I appeal to Christ. And through Christ, I will receive all things. Not of my own doing, but of his. So let's go back to the very beginning question, because clearly it was an issue. This is accept, we, can, we can substitute acceptance, credentials, whatever, um, because ultimately the question is, where does righteousness come from? Because righteousness is how we enter into the tabernacle and be with God. So where does it come from? It doesn't come from your resume. We already said, that's dung. It doesn't come from your credentials. They are bankrupt. It doesn't come from your works because they are broken, incomplete, and insufficient for accomplishing that work. Verse 9 tells us, We are found in him, in Christ, not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. We cannot add to the work that Christ has already done on behalf. One, as we've already said, it's laughable, it's absurd. And two, it robs him of the glory that he is due. He is author, of, perfecter of salvation. He rules over all creation. And if we try to assign ourselves credentials in that, we are taking away from his God-given and one right. And anyone who says otherwise is a dog, is an outsider, is an evildoer, and is a mutilator of the message. Instead, we put our faith in the work of Christ, and in doing so, we received his righteousness as our own. It is imparted to us. And again, it is a gift. So let's deal with verse 11, because I think there is some trickiness there too. So verse 11 says that by any means possible, I might attain the resurrection from the dead. So doesn't attain imply, by connotation, work that I still have to do? If righteousness comes through faith in Jesus' finished and final work, doesn't this create a contradiction? The answer is no, but context is key, as usual. We learned in Philippians 1, verse 6, that we have already been told that the work that has been started in us will be brought to completion, not by ourselves, but by God himself. God is doing the work. We have also been told that we must work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who works in us, both to will and work for his good pleasure. God, God who works in us. And we're not working out our faith. The faith has already been a gift. The sanctification that comes as we work out our salvation means that we day by day look more and more like Christ. But that belonging, that ability to stand and come to the table and not drink judgment and eat judgment upon us comes from that faith that was given to us by God, by Jesus. So all that being said, it is tricky. And there is reason to show caution and not neglect our faith, assuming that everything will just work itself out. So this faith is a gift, and God tells us and commands us to work out that salvation because he wants us to grow more and more like him, right? And he wants us to commune with him. He wants us to know him. And if we feel like we're good, we got to figure it out because we said the prayer or we, we, uh, we had an emotional experience at a camp or something some one time, uh, then ultimately we're in the balance, right? And so although our faith is signed and sealed in the sacrament, as we will say, 
we still are encouraged and exhorted to remind ourselves of the gospel, that it is Christ's work, not ours, that earns our justification. We must continually count our resumes and credentials as a loss. We must self-examine and confess to each other when we try to ascend our own little thrones. We must live in community so that others can help us see our blind spots. We must continually, and I said it, we have do it here weekly, come to the table in remembrance, commune with Christ. We must continually die to ourselves and reject the temptation to pull out those resumes at times when we think we are owed something or need to measure up to something. And let's be honest, we all fail, and we still fail. We do still return to confidence in dead flesh. I know that for myself, in moments of outrage, I think, did they know who I am, what I deserve? I know that I have weaknesses that are made apparent at crucial times at my house. It's painfully obvious to me when I lose patience with two little boys who need dad to love them well. Those two boys show me that I have much to grow in, much for which to be humbled, and much in which I alone am not enough. But thanks be to God, this is where grace is present. If I continually seek to know Jesus, verse 10 says, if I continually press into the power of his resurrection, if I continually seek to share in his sufferings, if I continually seek to be like him, to show patience for my family, to love them like he loves me, and to love my neighbors like he loves his neighbors, if I continually seek to be long-suffering in all things just like he has been with me, then indeed, by any means possible, I will attain that new life in Christ. And it will be great joy to me, and it will be great glory to him. And we do it together as a church. So wrapping things up, let us rejoice and keep watch. Let us rejoice in the resume of Christ. Let us rejoice knowing that our acceptance in God's covenant family had nothing to do with our works of the flesh, but in the works of our first brother. Let us rejoice in the truth that our righteousness and good standing before the Father comes from our faith that Jesus is who he says he is and that he wields the power of life over death. And let us keep watch against the distractions, the lies, the temptations to tape those little resumes back together or pull them out from the ashes where they actually belong. Let us keep watch over our own hearts and against the outsiders who would have us believe that our resumes are actually worth something or that they need to be worth more by way of addition to Christ's already completed work. Let us, in good faith, preach the worthlessness of fleshly credentials in the hope that some may hear the good news in faith and miraculously count Christ as their supreme gain. So if we truly believe that knowing Christ surpasses all things, that drawing from his well is of the utmost profit, where do we go? Where do we put our time, talents, money, and effort? That comes next week. For now, we are invited to remember once again, remember all that we gain through Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you have removed the burden of having to prove ourselves, that you have removed the burden of the world telling us why we should or shouldn't belong, that you've removed the burden, the true burden, that because of our sin we have no business standing before you, but because of Christ 
because of you, we are able to faithfully stand before you and not be consumed. Spirit, I ask that you would give us that, let us feel that freedom this morning. The truth in that justification may rest upon us, but I know that day by day and week by week, we still struggle. And so be gentle with us, Lord. Be kind. Help us to remember that our justification is through Christ alone. And help us to remember that ultimately you are a dad that is well-pleased with us because you are well-pleased with your son. As a church, let us grow together in this humility. Let us be able to count others more worthy than ourselves. Let us seek to show honor and deference to one another. And by your miraculous work, let even those outsiders who would demand otherwise come in, see the love that is shared amongst this community, and be transformed by it into a way that is saving and into a way that they then now belong to a part of it as well. We love you, and we thank you so much for loving us. In Jesus' name I pray.